You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is an assistant professor of political science whose work focuses on the effects of macroeconomic changes on political competition and social well-being. His research interests include welfare state politics, social inequality, gender equality, economic crises, labor markets, European politics, and the political economy of technology. His latest book is titled The Repoliticization of the Welfare State. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Ian McManus. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you've done a nice job of summing up kind of uh, sort of my current position um, and and some research interests. Um, One of the things that um, I'd sort of mention in terms of um, what kind of brought me to this research and to this this book in particular, um, when I started my uh, PhD program at Northeastern University in 2010, um, it was the height of the Great Recession. And so at the time, you saw um, sort of serious debates over issues such as fiscal stimulus and austerity and, and welfare policies. And there was this real kind of um, serious contestation over how different societies and governments were responding to the crisis. Um, And so one of the things um, that really drew me to this is trying to understand the ways in which sort of existing welfare institutions uh, and the political composition of governments um, shaped sort of social policies, shaped economic policies in response to this uh, global economic downturn. I also had the opportunity when I completed my PhD um, to do a postdoc at the University of Lisbon uh, in 2017. And it was interesting because although a number of countries had sort of moved out of the recession by then and had kind of seen sort of growth uh, and some degree of return to normalcy, Portugal was still very much kind of bearing sort of the legacies of the, the Great Recession. Um, I also had an opportunity after that to do a postdoc at the London School of Economics uh, in the social policy department, where, again, there were these these very sort of engaging and interesting discussions over, um, you know, the kinds of social policy interventions, um, the the degree to which sort of, um, you know, reliance on markets versus government um, uh, that were that were kind of in place. So. There was sort of this very rich environment for which for which I had an opportunity to kind of explore some of these issues. Okay, um, so yeah, your latest book is titled "The Repoliticization of the Welfare State." Um, in the introduction, you write, "Quote the book. This book is one of the first to systematically compare welfare state politics before and after the Great Recession, arguing that a new and lasting post-crisis dynamic has emerged, where political parties once again matter for social spending." So, can you start by telling us a bit about the how and why of this pretext regarding? Um, welfare state politics and how they've changed before and after the Great Recession? Yeah, so one of the things I wanted to test in in the book was to look at to what extent did the Great Recession serve as sort of a a critical juncture, sort of a a moment, sort of an inflection point. Um, And so what I began to look at is sort of I gathered data um, across 28 
countries for the period kind of beginning in 1990 through um, the economic crisis to see with the start of the financial crisis, did this mark sort of a shift in sort of the factors that affected social spending? Uh, and one of the sort of surprising things that came out of this was that if you look at the, the kind of pre-crisis, pre-2008 period, you find that um, political partisanship really has little effect on sort of social spending outcomes. Um, and this largely had to do with sort of a more widespread embrace of sort of neoliberal policies and reforms, both across countries, but also across political parties. Um, and so you see this um, in terms of sort of the effects of political government composition on social spending. You see this in terms of kind of party manifestos and sort of the degree to which left or right parties focus on welfare. Um, and I think if you're looking at this pre-crisis period, you see, for example, um, not just center-right parties embracing um, sort of more liberal market reforms towards welfare and some degree of retrenchment, but even parties on the center-left. So if you look at the New Democrats under Bill Clinton, um, you see, for example, the introduction of the Personal Responsibilities and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act um, in 96. This is sort of a, a promotion of more of a workfare model. Um, you see uh, New Labor under Tony Blair kind of promoting these third-way uh, policies, emphasizing sort of a greater reliance on, on sort of market provision of welfare. Um, but surprisingly, even in countries like Germany and Sweden, you see social democratic parties introducing many of these sort of liberal reforms. So, for example, you see a coalition government of social democrats and the Green Party in Germany introducing the Hartz IV reforms, which are uh, liberal labor market uh, and to some degree welfare reforms. And so you're seeing um, uh, a, an emerging consensus during this period begin to emerge. And I think it's sort of telling if you look at um, uh, Bill Clinton has a couple of quotes at this time, which I think really highlight this phenomenon. So, for example, um, when he signs, uh, you know, some of these liberal welfare reforms into place, he, he's quoted as saying, this is the end of welfare as we know it. After I sign my name to these bills, welfare will no longer be a political issue, right? This idea that um, there's been sort of a political agreement um, across kind of the spectrum. What you find, however, is that in in the wake of the Great Recession, um, there's a dramatic shift that occurs uh, in which you start to see center-right parties continuing their embrace of fiscal discipline, welfare, retrenchment, and liberalization. But you start to see center-left parties, social democratic parties, start to advocate for stronger state intervention, for um, sort of greater social expenditure. And so you really start to see um, this divergence occur. And again, you could look at this sort of statistically, the effects of you know, government composition on social spending outcomes. But even if you look again at party manifestos, you start to see you know, um, the degree to which parties on the left start to really promote sort of more welfare kind of expansion um, compared to their center-right counterparts. Okay, um, so in the book, you go over in-depth country case studies representing five distinct welfare state types, um, including Germany, the United Kingdom, Sweden, Spain, and the Czech Republic. So I wanted to briefly ask about each of these, starting with the German model, which you just touched on. 
So as I understand it, Germany has one of those comprehensive social welfare systems. Um, however, unlike the American model, it's, it's funded through semi-public institutions that share costs between individuals, employers, and the government. Um, so can you tell us a bit more about the, the German welfare model than the political and partisan divides and, and how those have changed um, after, after the GFC? Yeah, and so what, one of the things that I, I would say is so these five country case studies um, are, are based upon uh, a typology initially introduced by Gösta Esping-Anderson, uh, a Danish social scientist, who, who looks at not only sort of differences in welfare in terms of levels of expenditure, but the, the ways in which you know, welfare states are funded, in which welfare benefits are sort of provided and was accessed. Um, and in this sort of typology, he outlines um, a liberal model, which would be akin to what we see, for example, in the US or the UK. He looks at a, a conservative model or kind of a continental model, which is what you might see in a place like Germany, as well as uh, a social democratic Nordic model, which you see in, say, Sweden um, or um, you know, Norway. I built upon this typology to say, um, based on the literature to say, you know, there, there are these three types of welfare. But beyond that, you know, Southern European and Eastern European welfare states have distinct historical legacies, um, institutional kind of development that may make them sort of unique um, welfare models. So one of the things that the book tries to do is have um, a representative case study for each of these different welfare state types. One of the things that you see um, in Germany as a more of the conservative continental model, um, welfare provision um, is often kind of through, in recent years, some private provision, but also um, through kind of employment-based benefits. You often see um, the, the degree of benefit correlated to the, the, kind, the kind of work, the degree of work. And, and one of the things you found over time is that there is this phenomenon of dualization happening in Germany. Um, what this essentially means is that um, there was liberalization of certain kind of labor market sectors, um, while at the same time, certain core workers kind of um, continue to have high degrees of job protection, wage protection, et cetera. So the, this kind of liberalizing of part of the economy helped Germany drastically reduce what would have been persistently high unemployment. Um, at the same time, you had sort of a core workers who had better levels of sort of social protection um, and more precarious sort of uh, workers in these, these sectors. So you started to have a bit of an insider-outsider divide taking place. So this is a kind of challenge that emerged within this sort of welfare state model within Germany that um, was not necessarily the same uh, in other countries. Um, beyond that, one of the things I would say is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, one of the more interesting uh, phenomenon during the pre-crisis period is you have social democratic-led uh, governments who are the ones to introduce a lot of these liberal reforms. Um, in fact, going further than some of their center-right uh, counterparts at the time. And so during this kind of period, you do see this sort of um, coming together of the left and right around kind of uh, certain types of reforms. 
in the wake of the crisis, you start to see a more uh, pronounced shift. Uh, the SPD starts, the Social Democrats start to push back against some of these um, measures and, and start to advocate for greater public expenditure and social spending, um, expansions of certain benefits. Um, and even though they um, were advocates to a degree of fiscal discipline, not to the same degree that Angela Merkel and the, and the Christian Democratic Party advocated for austerity. So you start to see this split between parties and at distinct points in time. Okay, um, perfect. So next, I wanted to ask you about the United Kingdom. Um, I think this is one where an American audience might be a little bit more familiar. Um, the UK famously went through the collectivization consensus, um, or sorry, the collectivist consensus after the war with um, heavy state intervention in the economy and a large welfare state until the Thatcherist right in the 70s and 80s. Um, more recently, I'm sure a lot of our audience remembers the extremely controversial austerity measures and welfare cuts after the 2008 recession. So can you tell us a bit about the, the UK welfare model, um, which you call the, the liberal welfare state and the post-recession politics? Yeah, and so um, I think you're you're spot on when you when looking at the UK, um, an American audience would see a lot closer parallels to the welfare system there than here. Of course, they have of course universal health care in the in the form of the, the NHS, but you're right um, in kind of looking at sort of the trajectory of welfare state development and provision over time. And this actually ties into one of the things I was really interested in in the book was, you know, to what degree do things like economic crises serve as these moments of change, right? So you have the UK much like the US coming out of um, the world wars and the Great Depression, and you have the, the beverage report come out at the time which sort of outlines a much more expansive role for government in providing welfare provision to citizens. This idea that um, it's a responsibility of government to care for people from, from very young age um, through old age. And you start to see the emergence of more of a classic kind of welfare state, kind of the golden age of welfare as we see it. Um, and in some ways, you could look at this um, ideologically kind of representing more of sort of a Keynesian kind of intervention compared to the more laissez-faire type of economic models that, that kind of existed before, um, before kind of World War I. Interestingly, you start to see just as in, in, in the US, the 1970s uh, kind of stagflation crisis, you see a pivot in economic policy towards uh, more neoliberal types of policies. And this preliminary pre-crisis period I was looking at really is at the height of this, this um, kind of paradigm, right? So you have um, parties on the center left and center right um, embracing more liberalization, embracing more reforms, um, trying to promote things like kind of a more productive and efficient welfare state um, much more emphasis on workfare, so encouraging people back into work, back into the labor market, rather than offering, offering more passive social assistance. Um, what you see uh, at the very beginning of the global economic crisis, um, this is true across many countries, you see a preliminary stimulus um, uh, response really to deal with 
the kind of the scale and scope of this economic downturn. Um, but in 2010, you see um, the conservatives uh, come into power on, with David Cameron. And what's interesting is if you look at that moment in time and you look at, so in the US, you have uh, the Obama administration still in power. And in 2010, the UK government, uh, the Tory government, sort of makes a radical shift away from stimulus towards more austerity, making some of the largest cuts to the British welfare state since its inception after World War II. Um, at the same time, the center left kind of Democrats in the US decide to continue stimulus efforts. So you start to see, even amongst kind of countries that have similar liberal welfare models, you start to see um, different governments, um, center left or center right governments, kind of pursuing different responses. Um, of course, what you start to see in the UK is that uh, the conservatives start adopting sort of more welfare retrenchment, much more of a focus on fiscal austerity and discipline. Whereas in the past, kind of the, the new labor had been sort of stronger advocates of kind of uh, market fundamentalism, you start to see them embrace, uh, re-embrace, I should say, um, social expenditure, promotion of the welfare state. Um, so you're seeing this uh, division emerge there as well. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think we can definitely see see parallels between the two. Um and and between America as well um, and the UK. So um, next in in the book, you talk about the Swedish model, which is, I mean, basically synonymous with huge welfare spending. Um, Sweden famously experienced a financial crisis of epic proportions in the early 1990s, after which the the entire system was reformed. Um, Sweden today has perhaps the most comprehensive welfare state, um, albeit funded by ultra high taxes. Um, however, I think um, most most people outside of um, Sweden or, or Europe are, are unfamiliar with sort of the internal um, politics and, and um, partisan divides. Um, so in the book, you write, inspired by neoliberal ideas, the moderates in recent years have favored a platform that advocates for lower taxes, less government intervention, and a dramatic reduction in the size and function of the Swedish welfare state. This position reflects neoliberal beliefs, the general and Universal Nordic welfare states are too expensive and inefficient and hinder competition and economic growth. So this sort of sounds um, similar to the the conservatives in the UK, maybe even the the Republicans or, or libertarians in, in the US. So can you tell us a bit more about this political movement in Sweden and its success or lack thereof? Yeah. And one thing I should mention when discussing um, Germany or Sweden and some of these liberal reforms that were introduced. This doesn't necessarily mean that, that the Swedish welfare model um, is converging with that of the UK or US model, um, but there is certainly a shift in the degree to which um, the, state, the, the state intervention um, was seen as sort of the more desirable avenue um, for, for social provision. Um, in other words, there, there was even in places like Sweden, this idea that, well, we can use sort of liberal market policies to promote um, more efficient uh, welfare programs. We can use them to, to um, kind of 
reduce the sort of fiscal burden on the state. And so, for example, you see, um, I, I sort of start chapter six of the looking at sort of the Nordic welfare model, um, a, a quote by Anders Borg, who was a conservative Swedish minister of finance. He says, like many societies, we went too far in our welfare state ambitions. And there was this idea of, you know, we need to rein in welfare spending. We need to focus more on um, bringing people into the labor market. We need to find more sort of private provision of, of care and other things. And so, again, you start to see um, in Sweden during this time, the introduction of liberal economic and social policies. As you point out, Sweden had um, this, this financial crisis in the 90s that it had been reeling from, and this sort of prompted um, further reforms. And you, you see, um, again, uh, though these welfare models are, are quite distinct in sort of the, how they sort of raise funds, how they offer provision, you do see that some of the ideas um, that are prominent globally in place there. So neoliberalism, you really can't overstate how, how much of a kind of dominant paradigm it was, particularly in this pre-crisis period, um, to the degree that even sort of social democrats at the time are introducing some of these kinds of reforms. Um, notably, if you look at uh, the conservative party coming to power after the Great Recession, if you look of all the Nordic states, they go the furthest in welfare state retrenchment after the crisis. So they, they make more substantial uh, cuts. And I think you see on the other side of the political spectrum, you see the Social Democrats sort of re-embracing their um, kind of historical support for the welfare state. They start to look towards greater state intervention. They start to look towards more social spending, um, which was certainly not the case in this pre-crisis period. Uh, and, and one of the things I should mention when looking at sort of some of the reasons for why this is happening, part of this pivot is you could look that the, the crisis, it, it created a window of opportunity for ideological debate and challenge um, and divisions to reemerge. So it, it allowed for this sort of partisan debate over sort of good macroeconomic and social policy governance, but it also created political opportunities that may have reinforced partisan divisions. So um, a lot of center-left voting base looked towards the Social Democrats, uh, and many voters said, well, have you betrayed your sort of historical um, commitment to welfare? Um, can I distinguish between the policies of the center left and center right? Um, and this creates opportunities for some outside parties. So you see far left and right parties emerge in different countries. Um, and you also start to see the center left wanting to distance itself from some of the policies that like financial deregulation, which we're seeing maybe as a potential cause of the economic crisis, but also wanting to distance themselves from their center right political opponents. So there's sort of political opportunity as well as um, room for ideological division, which occurs. Um, and so I think what's, what's maybe more striking for an American audience is the Social Democrats um, run on a platform and they're able to, to regain power. And the platform is essentially, we are going to raise your taxes 
and we're going to offer you more kind of welfare protection and benefits. Um, and this is interesting because I think to many Americans, the idea of a party running on, we're going to raise your taxes, it seems oftentimes like a political non-starter. But there in Sweden, there was sort of a recognition amongst the electorate, at least some of the electorate, a willingness to accept a higher sort of financial burden for these um, kind of welfare types of benefits. Okay. Um... Great. I, I think that that's that's a really comprehensive overview and definitely a, a bit different from, um, you know, what, what we saw in sort of the, the earlier couple of comparisons. Um, so because we're running out of time, I'm going to skip over Spain and go to the Czech Republic, which I think is, is the more interesting one of the two, um, which, which you talk about. So you discussed the position of the former Czech Republic president during the GFC named Vaclav Klaus writing, Quote, Mr. Klaus's comments reflect a neoliberal view of the European welfare state as an unproductive hindrance to economic competition and growth. It also speaks to Mr. Klaus's belief um, in the importance of deregulation and a reliance on the market rather than on the government or EU institutions to provide um, positive economic and social outcomes, although there were pressures to bring Czech social spending and benefits in line with more developed and generous welfare states of other EU member states before the GFC. There were also pressures both internal and external to introduce sweeping neoliberal reforms. So I think we're we're starting to see sort of a, a pattern emerge across all of these with like neoliberal pushes. Um, you know, although there are partisan divides on that, I think by and large we see sort of a trend um, towards um, liberalization in terms of cutting taxes, um, cutting benefits. You know, more market market oriented reforms um, and less government intervention. Um, so is this parallel something that that has actually been observed um, all over the world outside the GFC? Is, is this trend something that we're seeing continuing? And also. Tell us a bit about you know what happened in the Czech Republic after the recession as well. Yeah, well, so why don't I start with the Czech Republic and, and then talk a bit more broadly? Um, so the the, the Vaclav Klaus um, is the the first kind of uh, uh, prime minister uh, in, in the Czech Republic, and so again with each of these chapters, there's a, there's sort of I, I try to start with a quote that really highlights some of these political tensions and debates, and so uh, Klaus um, comments at, at one point. The European economic and social model is one characterized by government overregulation and by the unproductive welfare state. So this is pretty telling about his kind of perspective in terms of economic governance, in terms of the role of the state. And you have to remember, I, I mentioned that each of these welfare types um, have distinct kind of operations, but they also have distinct historical legacies. So if you look at the Czech Republic, you know, Klaus is coming from the post-Soviet transition and really a strong embrace of kind of liberal democracy. So he's he's trying to promote um, a very different kind of economic and political system than uh, had been present before. So you start to see, um, you know, the, the communist legacy in the country, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union um, uh, happening more broadly within the region. And so there's sort of this, this legacy in the Czech Republic where you have um, both a desire towards liberalization, but even a process of modernization and catch up. So there's this interesting kind of phenomenon in the case of the Czech Republic, where you have both a desire to increase social spending to bring it more in line with other more advanced developed economies in Europe, but also more liberal reforms. So there's sort of these kind of dual trends happening. That said, social spending will continue to be lower than in other countries in the region. Um, when you look at um, 
what I think is particularly interesting in the, in the Czech Republic case is you have not only sort of a center left, center right pre-crisis consensus and post-crisis divergence, but you actually start to see a much broader um, splintering of the, uh, the, the Czech political system. Um, so you end up having, um, you know, the, the, the two main parties sort of dominating Czech politics um, for most of its history. And then in the wake of the crisis, um, then losing considerable support and the introduction of um, a third party. And so not only did sort of parties diverge, but actually created more space for other kinds of parties that were able to kind of critique both the center left and center right for the cause of the crisis or their policies before the crisis. So this is sort of interesting and different than we see in other cases. Um, as far as your, your question about sort of where, you know, what are, what are sort of the, the longer term implications? I think, you know, we're, we're at a point now with the, the COVID-19 pandemic where you still see considerable tensions around, you know, to what degree should governments introduce or maintain stimulus measures? Should they continue social spending, even if this means higher deficit spending, higher debts? And so some of the debates that have existed prior are, are still there. So there's the question again of, you know, what is the role of government? Um, what should fiscal policy be? And if there's a need for greater discipline or austerity, should that be a short-term or medium-term or longer-term goal? Okay. Um, well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. McManus. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Perfect. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.